Welcome to another edition of Gazillion Voices Radio, a partnership between Gazillion Voices Magazine and KFAI. I'm your host, Kevin Vollmers. I'm the executive director of Gazillion Strong, a nonprofit organization based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today with me is Adam Krapser, who is joining me via his cell phone while heading back from Seattle to his home. A little bit about Adam. Like me, Adam is a Korean adoptee. He came to the U.S. in March of 1979 and is now at the risk of being deported back to Korea, whose language and culture are foreign to him. His story is unique, but unfortunately in many ways it's not. He is one of hundreds or potentially thousands of international adoptees whose adoptive parents did not forget and or chose not to finalize his naturalization paperwork. He is one of hundreds or potentially thousands of international adoptees whom politicians, including those here in Minnesota, Senator Amy Klobuchar and Representative Keith Ellison, whom have turned a blind eye. His story is reflected in the lives of hundreds and potentially thousands of international adoptees here in Minnesota, the home to the most international adoptees in the country, who currently have been readopted or rehomed, been kicked out of their adoptive families' homes, live in homeless shelters, and physically and or sexually have been abused. Adam's story is one that we should all care about, not just here in Minnesota, but throughout the U.S. and other nations that have entrusted their children to U.S. adoptive families. Welcome to the conversation, Adam. Thank you for having me, Kevin. So um, I briefly outlined your story, um, but could you talk about your life starting from when you were adopted to Hawaii, and uh, please share however much you like, and please please don't hold back. Sure. Thank you, Kevin. Um, again, my name is Adam Krapser. I am a Korean adoptee. Um, I did come over here in 1979 from Seoul, Korea. Um, was adopted to an American family. Um, out of They actually resided in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I think they came and picked me up in, in Hawaii. Um, I went to stay with this family um, for the better part of six years. We moved from Detroit, Michigan to Portland, Oregon. Um, my adoptive father was uh, worked for Beacons Moving Company, and his wife was a homemaker. They had five uh, biological children of their own. Um, and they adopted myself, my biological sister, and one other Korean adoptee girl from the same orphanage. Like I said, we stayed there for that, with them for about six years. After six years, the family was getting ready to divorce the mother and father, um, at which time they relinquished and surrendered myself and my sister, my biological sister, back to the state agency. Um, during the six years that we lived there, uh, some of my earliest memories would be of major, major violence, major, major dysfunction and just fighting and yelling, stuff that I really, I don't think that I was used to from the orphanage. Um, it was all a lot to take in and learn really quickly. Again, when we were split up, uh, I don't know where they took my sister or where she went. I assume she went to foster care, um, which is where I went. This family had a lot of... They, they were, they were semi-religious. Um, I believe they were Lutheran. Um, 
but they had a lot of other issues and a lot of things that, that me as a child, I really couldn't understand, um, you know, their reasonings, you know, why is this, you know, and stuff. Uh, let's see. So needless to say, uh, my sister and I, we didn't, we didn't, uh, assimilate into the family very well. Uh, we didn't, uh, get along with a lot of their, their biological sibling or their bi biological children. They had an older son who was brought to my attention years and years later that uh, was sexually abusive to my biological sister. And who knows if any of the other children were victimized as well. Um, I have a lot of kind of hazy memories from that family. Um, I tried to block out a lot of it early on. I know that on the physical abuse end, uh, I sustained quite a bit from uh, both parents, and um, I think that was my earliest, like I said, memories of uh, any kind of uh, trauma or, uh, or you know, violence. So after that, I went to go live in um, foster care, shelter homes, and uh, boys' homes. The one that stands out the most to me was a, a boys' home in Portland, Oregon, called Perry Center for Children. Um, it is now called Trillium Family Services and Perry Center for Children. Um, while I was there, you can imagine in the 80s, uh, mid-80s, in an institution like that, pretty much anything you could imagine happened. Um, and uh, at the time, I, I guess part of me thought that a lot of those things were normal. And those things would be um, anything from, you know, physical acting out between the kids, fighting, um, running away and going through runaway programs, which were pretty much when you got caught, you were stripped down to your birthday suit and you got to earn back your clothes and, and different stuff. But um, there was a lot of uh, adolescent um, sexual abuse, acting out, whatever you may call it, that happened at that facility and, and other ones that I was at. As an adult now, I kind of look back on it and I understand that you know, those, those kind of things happened in those kinds of places. Didn't really understand them too much growing up, but I uh, have a pretty good grasp on, on how and why those things were, were taking place back then. Let's see, after that, uh, I was adopted for a second time to a family where I get my last name from, the Crapsers, and they were in Salem, Oregon. Uh, the mom, Dolly Crapser, was a pretty devout Jehovah Witness. Um, the father was a used car salesman or car dealer. Um, they met in the 60s on a traveling carnival back in the Midwest. I'm not sure exactly what, what city. Uh, he came from Minnesota, ironically, from Minnetonka, and she hailed from Bluefield, West Virginia. When I went to go live with them, they had three other or two, two other adopted children living in the home and one biological son. In 1987, I went to, to, to be placed with them and then was subsequently adopted in 1989. Uh, during the time that I stayed there with them, I can't even believe some of the things that took place there. Um, I'll just hit a couple of the high ones, and that's just a lot of these children that were living in this home were, were pretty young. I mean, let's see, probably between the ages of 6 and 15. Um, and I was, when I went to live there with them, I believe I was 11 or 12. 
let's see, during the five years that I lived there with them, um, every day it was pretty common to be choke slammed or hit or beat or burned um, or some form of just heinous, heinous sadistic abuse. Um, specifically, I mean, I could go into, you know, very memorable experiences that I have that stand out uh, for different reasons. For instance, um, he broke my nose at age 14. I couldn't find his car keys. And to this day, I have a crooked nose for it. Hmm. Um, fast forward to 1991. Actually, no, I should back up a little bit. Would have been maybe 89 or 90 um, when I was in school. I was the only Korean and the only Asian kid in both elementary and um, middle school that I went to. Um, I don't think I saw another Asian face until my first year of high school. Uh, while I was in elementary and middle school, um, I dealt with severe bullying. Um, I was quite a bit smaller than probably, you know, most Koreans, but I was I was quite a bit smaller than, than any kid um, at that time. And for that and the way I looked, I was, I was picked on and bullied quite a bit. Um, I didn't like that, and I, I started sticking up for myself after a while. My adoptive father, you know, he was, he was a pretty... Um, old school kind of guy in the sense of, you know, his advice to me was, you know, double up your fist and punch him in the mouth. And so that happened uh, on more than one occasion. And it, caught, it was the start to my life of, uh, of criminal history, of having a permanent criminal history. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. But at 14, I committed an assault and I punched an upperclassman in the mouth who had braces. Um, I got an assault charge out of that. Um, later, when I went back to school to uh, after the suspension, I was confronted by uh, four of his friends and him, and um, I already knew that they wanted to beat me up, and I went there prepared, and so I had made some homemade nunchucks in my adopted dad's garage, and I went to school, and when I was confronted by them, I assaulted one of them, and... Uh, for that, I ended up getting another assault charge and went mm. to juvenile detention and was placed on juvenile probation. So from that time, that would have been 89 or 90. Shortly thereafter, in 1991, my adoptive parents, Tom and Dolly Crapser, were charged. At first, they were charged with, um, I want to say, like 70 counts of different forms of child abuse. And uh, Tom Crapser was charged with child rape and child sex abuse. Specific acts of child abuse, I don't remember them happening to me. However, and if you guys will bear with me here, um, just in the last few days, I've, I've talked to somebody about it, and, I, and I'm okay with talking about it now because I understand that it, that it was, I guess it would be deemed uh, sexually abusive nowadays, but my adopted father, uh, you know, on many times exposed himself to me or to other, you know, the other children who were, like I said, younger than me. And there were times when he would, um, uh, quote, unquote, snuggle with us, and he would pick one child uh, each morning at breakfast time, and they'd go in and get a sleep in, I guess, um, with him. Um, he was accused and charged and subsequently pled guilty to or took a plea bargain to raping and uh, sexually abusing uh, one of the other foster or adoptive daughters in the home or sisters in the home. 
they were also charged with uh, criminal mistreatment and various forms of child abuse. They ended up uh, pleading, uh, plea bargaining out and getting, um, some Crapser got 90 days in the county jail, two years uh, probation, and had to register as a registered sex offender. He completed his two years of probation. He did 90 days in the jail in protective custody, and he registered as a sex offender. Now, three years ago or four years ago, I believe he was taken off of the predatory sex offender registration and was placed into a category where eh, the general public can't really just go look him up on the computer. I want to say that these people uh, are very smart. When I went to live with them, it was very hard for me because part of me really just wanted a family. Um, I had already been through an adoptive home and almost was adopted one other time, uh, but was not. And, you know, I I wanted these people to care about me. I wanted them to love me. I wanted them to... um, you know, unite, reunite me with my biological sister, which did not happen. Um, my whole life I was told, you know, that I'm, that I need to stop worrying about Korea and I need to quit, you know, quit crying about all these things, about the orphanage and my birth mom and stuff, because I'm American. That's what I was told is that I'm American. And so I grew up having, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of American influence and a lot of uh, hangups and complexes about different things about myself. Um, after we were removed from the home and they were charged and, and everything with these crimes, um, I had a lot of problems with them and I fought with them a lot because I didn't understand what was going on. Uh, the Crapsers kicked me out of their home at 16 years old and I started my life on my own at that time. Um, as a young man, you know, as a teenager and as a young man, I've I've been homeless. I've slept in a car. I can remember at 17 working three fast food jobs and sleeping in the back of a Hugo. And I know that sounds kind of like sensational, but I, I promise you that it it's, it happened. It's factual. Everything that I say right now are, are elements or excerpts from my life. Um, that was a hard year for me at that time. Um, a lot of different things happened. It was the first time I experimented with drugs. I think it was the first time that I ever, like, seriously, seriously contemplated suicide. Um, it was the first time that I really, like, felt the most hopeless and the most despair I'd ever felt in my life because I was, you know, truly 100% had to take care of myself and, and figure out how to eat and how to take, you know, stay clean and you know, I washed my socks in a McDonald's sink for, mm. I don't know, a few months. Um, I never had much growing up, and I never had much as a young man. Um, over the years, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I was never naturalized. I never had, you know, ID. I never had a lot of these things that, that you're supposed to have. And so early on, I... I I did things the best that I could, and I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, during the time on the street, I broke into the Crapsers' home, into my adoptive family's home. I broke in there. I broke a window, and my intent, my intention of breaking into their home was to, was to get my rubber shoes and my Korean Bible that came with me from the orphanage. I was unsuccessful at, at getting those things. 
Um, these are things I had asked for over the years from my adoptive parents, and uh, they kept them from me, and or they had thrown them away. I felt inside out most of my life because I, I, for the longest time, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate, I felt like I was the only one. I didn't right. have a community or you know other people around me that looked like me or or that early on in life had a speech impediment or didn't fit these American clothes right. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, it was a tough time. Uh, I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, and I'm sorry. No, no, it's uh, all right. Keep going. But um, anyway, so uh, this family, after all of these things, for the next 15 years, 15 to 20 years, I would, every so often I would ask them for... Uh, my adoption records, my birth certificate, anything that could help me and getting a job, going to college, anything. Um, and I was denied. Um, as a result of breaking into my adoptive family's home, I was prosecuted. Um, the adopted mom, Dolly, and uh, filed charges against me, and I was prosecuted in a court of law. The dad, Mr. Crapster, uh, appealed to me to not take it to trial um, because I would lose. And because I would put the Crapser family through another trial and they had just went through two. It was the only family I, I thought that I would ever, ever have again. Right. So I agreed. I was told, was told that I would have get 18 months probation and that it would be over. That's not what happened. I ended up getting what's called upward departed because of those two juvenile felonies. And I was moved across the Oregon sentencing grid I think two spaces and I was placed into a prison category. At this time I would go to prison for 25 months and uh, would be my first, I guess, interaction with other Asian people. Um, going into prison was scary. It was even scarier because I was five foot one and 115 pounds going into adult prison system. Right. Um, you know, and I, uh, I didn't really know what to think other than I, what I was told from people in jail and, you know, knowing that it would be different and better and worse than county jail. Uh, but yet again, it would be another institution and, and I'd have to figure it out. And I did. Um, prison life is very hard if you're a minority because you get in where you fit in, whether you want to or not. And you're required to engage in prison politics. And a lot of times you're forced into situations to do things and to um, commit acts of violence for the Asian group or car, if you will. And these are things I had a lot of problems with. Uh, I didn't morally, I didn't like, I didn't like the way a lot of these things made me feel. And I knew that I was, I was changing. I knew that I was being affected by these things. And even, even more so than I, I was early on, I was still really confused. Um, for instance, I, I, I assaulted a, a guard while I was in there because he called me a VC, uh, a derogatory term for Vietnamese people, and all of the other people that were around me at the time were Vietnamese. And if I would have allowed the officer to say that to me, um, it would have caused me a lot of problems. So I had to uh, immediately uh, do something, and that caused a lot of problems for me later on, too. Mm-hmm. But so I got out of prison and I uh, was back on the street. Well, I went, the Crapsers let me stay in a trailer in their backyard for a month. I, I should say that because that's, that was the truth. And then I was kicked out again and 
you know, I wouldn't comply with Dolly Crapser's rules. She wanted me to attend uh, the Kingdom Hall for Jehovah Witnesses with her. And uh, we had fought about that almost all the time I had known her. Um, we would be pinched or hair pulled or, you know, uh, threatened to be beat or, you know, spanked, she would call it, when we got home if we didn't answer questions or raise our hands or participate in the uh, Jehovah Witness Church. Um so I got a, after that happened, I was kicked back out on the street, and um, at this time I would I would learn a lot because um, it was a different different time. I was a little older. I had a little bit of street smarts under me, and and I, I, I kind of knew what other ways from other from other people who were in dire situations, what other kind of ways there were to survive. So um, I ended up learning how to steal cars. Um, I justified that because. I thought that the insurance companies paid everybody for their cars if they were stolen, which I learned later on from having my own car stolen that that's not the case. But so the long and the short was that I, I stole for, for a long time in order to uh, pay bills or to, you know, eat or, you know, anything. And, and I didn't really know other ways. I had gotten my GED when I was 15 mm-hmm. um, because I had to drop out of school when the uh, newspaper articles and stuff came out and the news media coverage because kids were, or my classmates were pasting the, the newspaper articles on my locker and, and messing with me about it. I, I dropped out with went and uh, tried to work for a while. And, and anyways, it was a rough, rough number, a couple of years. And uh, I ended up going back to prison. I ended up getting a firearm charge and a, uh, stealing a car and went back to prison for 19 months. While I was in there, I told myself I didn't want to live that kind of life anymore. I, I, I was tired of it. And I, I watched Shawshank Redemption and they said, get busy living or get busy dying. And so I, that kind of stood out to me. And so I, I wanted to live. There's a lot of things I wanted to do still. And so I enrolled in cosmetology school while I was in prison. Um, and so I, I, went to uh, cosmetology school when I got out and that helped me a little bit um, because I was able to get some financial aid money. Mm-hmm. So I was able for the first time to be able to create some stability for myself. Um, and that would be you know, getting my own place and being able to pay my own bills for my first time in my life and uh, learn how to balance a checkbook and a checking account and different things. Um, so I was able to do that and uh, go to hair school, and I ended up dropping out of barber school for a couple of years, and I went to community college uh, to get a collision uh, degree to work on cars, and um, then I ended up going back and finishing my barbering school and um, worked in the automotive field for a lot of years and uh, on both ends doing labor and working in the office estimating working with the insurance companies. And the only reason I even got those jobs is from talking my way into them, really. Um, otherwise, if they had done a background check, I would never have got those jobs. But so, uh, yeah, so then I had a son in 2001, and uh, I didn't get in trouble for a long time. I think what else? Um, after that, I had my son, and I... I I don't know. I think I, I told myself that like I would be the biggest loser in the world and the biggest degenerate if I went back to prison after I had 
a child, you know, that right. I would not be, you know, treating my son right or doing him right by by living my life that way. So, you know, I, I try to do better. I I opened a small business. I, I, you know, tried as hard as I could to, to work as hard as I could and to pay my child support and pay all my fines and pay my bills and, and not steal and not, and, you know, try to not hang around people who were doing those types of things. And I did. I was successful at that for a long time. Um, well, I should say that actually over the last, my son is 14, and for 13 of those years, uh, I've been in and out of family court with his mother. Hmm. Um, his mother and her family have uh, I really cared for me since, since day one, and I, I understand that um, because at, at, at Jump Street, they knew that I had, or from Jump Street, they knew that I had a record. And I never realized early on in my life how bad or what a record would actually do to me later on in my life. And I now, um, at almost 40 years of age, uh, realize how important having a good record is and how bad uh, all these, these things have added up to uh, in my life and on my record and what they've done. And as a result of a lot of this, um, in 2013, or actually, I have to keep backing up. In 2012, I was able to go get or apply for a natural or permanent resident card. I had finally obtained one record that I needed from my adopted father. He he had withheld my entire adoption record until 2008. And in 2008, I lived in California and I had a really good job down there, but I was I was going to lose it because the 90-day period had came up for me to produce documents for the I-9 form. Hmm. I could not produce those, and so I was, you know, uh, in jeopardy of losing my job. Um, I got in touch with, with my adoptive father, had a huge fight with him over the phone. Um, I finally told him that I was going to take my life. I finally told him that, you know, that I was going to take my life, that, that this was wrong, that, you know, after everything that he had done to me in my life, all I asked was for him to help me with my citizenship so that I could work. Right. Uh, shortly after that, I got a letter in the mail with a few documents, um, copies of documents. He sent me a letter saying that he had um, written a judge and gotten these, these documents, which is not true at all. He had never wrote this judge. These documents didn't come from, from the court. And I know this because you would have had to file a request uh, to have these files opened up to get them, and, and those were never filed. Um, mm. Like I said, he's a very smart man. He's very connected in his community. He's never dealt with any backlash from the charges, any of that stuff. Um, he's positioned really well with some wealthy people who believe his his story, which is that a bunch of troubled foster kids came in and, and ruined his life, even though he took plea bargains to, to serious crimes. So that's what that is. But um, fast forward now to 2012, I went and I applied for my green card. Um, unbeknownst to me, that's what would trigger a Homeland Security investigation. Um, in 2013, I would violate a protective order with my son's mom, which she obtained through family court. It did not come from any kind of a domestic violence situation or, uh, or criminal proceeding. It came out of family court, um, that the judge granted her because of my criminal history. Right. Um, 
And so once again, I realized that even in family court, even though I was not being charged with anything, um, my record would play a part uh, in my life. And um, so that happened. That order is still in effect. It was renewed last year by his mom. Um, all of these criminal family court proceedings happened because I filed uh, enforcement of parenting time paperwork because I wasn't getting my, um, my visitation with my son every other weekend. Uh, like the court order had had stated. Anyways, that's a whole nother story. But fast forward to 2013 now, um, I get into a pretty substantial fight with my at that time roommate up in uh, Vancouver, Washington. It, it was it was a, a huge argument and fight verbally. Um, I was assaulted with a mag light with a mag flashlight, and I ended up shoving this person. And this person is a female. Uh, she is older than me, and she has a serious drinking problem. And I didn't think that by pushing her out of the way and leaving the residence and moving back to Salem all in one night, I thought I did the correct thing. I didn't. Uh, by even touching somebody, I committed an assault in the fourth degree. The police called me, wanted me to come back and interview with them, and I didn't. I was in Salem, Oregon. Um, I told him I'm not coming back to Vancouver. So nothing happened for almost four months. Uh, four months later, I was uh, charged on an information charge. Vancouver does not have a grand jury uh, or an indictment process, or the state of Washington doesn't. So I was charged with an assault in the second degree. Assault in the second degree is like serious bodily injury. Right. This didn't, this didn't happen. It was in the prosecuting attorney to, or prosecutor, executing attorney's uh, scope to judge me however she wanted. And this is pretty commonplace up there. So I was charged with an assault too. They were able to extradite me out of the state of Oregon. Um, when this happened, I called my son. That's what got me the uh, violate and the protective order. Um, I had to go do two months in Salem in the county jail for contempt of court. That's also one of the issues Homeland, is secure, Homeland Security is bringing up as one of the reasons for being placed in removal um, or removal status. Uh, so I go to court on this and I end up going to the day of trial. I go through the jury selection. I realize that the, the deck is stacked against me. I have a public defender who will not give me any of the paperwork, no discovery. I mean, he's basically violating all kinds of laws and he said he's not. So long story short, he wasn't working for me. Uh, he kept telling me to take the plea bargain. So I took the plea bargain for 366 days. I completed eight months and 20 days of that sentence, and I was paroled last April 28th. Um, I've been on state supervision since then. I'm off this April 28th off of supervision. I had one year of it. I've completed uh, all but three of my domestic violence intervention um, anger management classes. Um, I've had no violations while I've been on this and um, hoping to be completely off uh, come the end of April. So with that being said, I know that I've put a lot of information out there about myself. Mm -hmm. I'm ashamed to say that I am a convicted felon. I would hope that your listeners would understand or at least try to understand that, yes, I'm accountable for my actions. 
I did my time. I served my, my, my sentences for these crimes. I wish that I would have never, ever, ever gotten in any trouble in my life. I wish that I could vote. I wish I was a U.S. citizen. I wish that I would have known better. I wish that I would have known that these things would carry on and affect me way later on in life and uh, affect my ability to live and, and to thrive and to give my children a better life. Um, I will touch on that. I, I have uh, two other children that I'm accountable to and another child on the way. I recently have gotten married. Um, you know, I have a good life right now with the exception of the deportation issue. Um, I've worked very hard to create my own family and to, to be a good person, you know, as best I can and to be uh, um, early, right, and to, to, to not hurt people and to not take from people. Um, I try really hard to not be bitter or to feel sorry for myself or to be angry at circumstance. I really, I, I care about people. Um, I, I want to see everybody do good. You know, I care about my people immensely. I never knew that that there is this much support and that there are this many good people out there who could relate and understand to even some of the things that I that I speak of, speaking of. Anyway, I'm just I'm very humbled and I'm very appreciative to be able to have uh, this outlet and this resource. That's all I can say is I'm, I'm thank you and thank you for listening to to what I say. I'm not, you know, the most eloquent speaker and this is. This is hard stuff to talk about, but I, I'm very thankful that, that uh, you guys would take the time to listen and that you would give me the opportunity to uh, uh, have this platform to, to share my, my story. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for taking the time to share all of that. I mean, that's, that is a lot to cover, and um, most people, I think, would have a difficult time sharing just a small, minute portion of it. Um, one of the follow-up questions that I have for you, I mean, you readily admit that you've made bad choices in your life, but do you think those choices that you have made warrant you being sent back to Korea? When you're brought into the United States as a adoptee for the purposes of adoption, uh, you know, being sent back to Korea, do you think that's warranted? You don't know the culture there, and you don't know the language I, there. I, I, honestly, Kevin, I, I don't think that there's... I think it would be... a a totally in direct opposition for the re to the reason that I was brought here in the first place. And the only thing that I can, that I can gauge that on is this, is that the adoptive, the second adoptive family that I live with had three biological children. All three of them are convicted felons um, and have had serious drug addiction problems with methamphetamine. These crimes that they've committed have been um, assaults, all kinds of stuff, all the way to identity thefts and, and you know, identity crimes, frauds and stuff. Um, for those crimes, you know, they did time and they've done parole and fines and all that kind of stuff, but they will never, ever in their lifetimes be in imminent fear of being sent somewhere where they would not be able to even understand what is being said to them, let alone any of the cultural practices. Um, they continue to use drugs and to drain on the social service system and everything else out there. And these things will never happen to them. They're the closest uh, direct uh, example that I can use to myself or that I can apply to myself and to what I'm facing. And I would just say that, I guess, simplistically for me, 
that if these people who I know uh, a lot of the things that they've been involved in and a lot of their reasonings and stuff, but if that is there, are not in worry of being deported to another country, then, you know, without sounding arrogant, I don't think that that should apply to me either. You have family here, um, a family that you have created now. And one of the things that I hear frequently from domestic and international adoptees is that sometimes when they find that physical connection and they create that family of their own that really call their own physically and biologically and emotionally and with through love and everything you have you have that right now what would happen to you and to your family how how would this all break down if you were to be deported well for one it would displace my family uh, immensely it would at least separate our family for a period of time I don't know how and definitely um, it would create such a strain and drain on our family that I don't know that we would make it. I don't know that we would be able to stay together, and that would be a, a major disservice and a major um, – that would be abusive to my children. Me being deported deported would victimize my children and, and my family, and that's, that's – honestly, I mean, that's what's most paramount. That's, what, that's what's most important to me. Take me out of the equation and everything, like it's my family. That's what I care about. I, I don't get a chance to go relive another childhood or adoptive family or any of that stuff. It's not going to happen. I've, I've put that to bed. I'm, I'm okay with that. But I can live through my children's experiences and through their smiles and through their life some of the things that maybe I would have enjoyed when I was younger. And that's really, that's really what, what gives me the motivation to, to live and to smile and to try to look at some of the good aspects of life is that my children have that in front of them. They have their whole family or their whole lifetime in front of them. And I just want to do it right. I want to do right by them and give that to them without all these pressures, you know, without all these things that they had no involvement with that they didn't ask for. That's, that's what's most important to me. But yes, it would, it would drastically impact and affect our family negatively. So let's just say for argument's sake that there were politicians sitting here with us right now. Politicians who, seriously, right at this given, any given moment could do something about the adoptee deportation and citizenship conversation that's been going on for decades. What would you say to them? What I would, what I would say to them is, I, I honestly, Kevin, I think that at this point in my life and with everything that I've experienced and that I understand now, in the world and, and surrounding adoption issues and all this deportation, immigration stuff is I would beg them. I would beg them. I would implore them to please fix the child citizenship act. That means to sit down and do it right. One time only do it once, once for all and cover all of the people out there that maybe are not naturalized and are afraid to come forward to get naturalized the people who are afraid to get naturalized because they hear these stories of people automatically getting locked up and detained and separated from their families um, to please just, there's been so many great things that have taken place. So many good laws that have taken place to help and empower American people. You know, America was founded on immigrants. America opened its borders to, to immigrants. America, you know, signed a bill to bring us over from Korea 
you know, during a military action. They promised us a better life over here. All I'm asking, I would ask them to keep their promise. That's all. You know, it's just to do what they say that they would do, you know, and if not for me, but for my daughters, for my children, you know, so that, so that they don't have to grow up with the um, being ostracized as being, um, you know, the, the foster kids daughter or, or any of those things. Kids are mean nowadays and any leverage they can get against somebody else that they're trying to pick on them, they're going to. And I don't want my kids to go through that, you know, and, and I'm sure that everybody can understand or maybe can understand if you've ever been picked on once in your lifetime. And that is that I really did live through this stuff. I really did experience this stuff and I did it with the last name of Crapser and I did it as a Korean adoptee and I'm still alive and I'm still standing. And the only reason I am is for my family. And so I would just ask them and beg them, please take the time out of their lives just a little bit to sit down and, and rectify this and fix this, amend this bill, amend this, the Child Citizenship Act, so that, A, we don't have to waste any more time that we could be spending on other things to help other people on this issue. And also, so that, I guess, in like, the history of Korean adoption or international adoption or whatever you will, that that this story or that this 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 law or whatever it was was handled correctly. That the subject of international adoptees that speak English that have lived here our whole lives are treated like Americans. You know, and that and so that we have the, the ability to do things as Americans. It's one of my biggest regrets in my life that I have not been able to vote during any election that I've been alive for, that I've never been able to contribute my part. I tried to enlist in the military three different times, and three different times I have not been able to, whether it be because of immigration or because of my criminal history. All I've wanted to do was be the best American that I can. You know, um, I, didn't, I, I didn't even really know how to acknowledge being a Korean American until just a few years ago how to even deal with it and be okay. Now I'm looking at things a lot differently because I have to because this paperwork is saying that I'm an immigrant. It's basically saying that I have been without a country since at least 1989. And that makes me feel really weird because I, I think that I speak fluent English. I think that I can write and read English good and that I have a kind of a good grip or grasp on American history, at least basic American history. But I promise, like, I would tell them, look, I know that I look a certain way on paper to you, but I promise you that that's not all, that doesn't define who I am as a, as a human being and as a person, you know, that I, I, I'm capable of more and that I, I, there is good in me. You know, I, I am a good person at heart. You know, I didn't know what to do a lot of times in my lifetime and I didn't have the guidance, you know, and I know that I'm still responsible for my actions and I still will... We'll, we'll deal with that, and I still will, you know, take whatever's coming to me. But in this particular situation, I don't think that I should be punished over and over or twice for things that, that I've already paid for, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. And uh, thank you for all of that, Adam. Um, are there, is there anything else that you would like to say? No, just just. Just again, my utmost gratitude and respect and and thankfulness to you and all your listeners and and all of the the people that support um, these issues. Um, 
I just want to say thank you again and, and thank you for everybody's time. All right. Thank you again, Adam, and uh, best of luck to you as uh, the process goes forward. And to listeners, if you want to help Adam, please, please share this story with your family, with your friends, on social media, blogs, etc. Also, please contact your lawmakers and tell them that there is a way that they can help Adam. Like he was saying, amend this Child Citizenship Act of 2000. You can help Adam and individuals like Adam who, through no fault of their own, do not have something that was promised to them, a U.S. citizenship. In the last three years, an amendment to the Child Citizenship Act 2000 has literally been sitting on the hill, not doing a thing. The amendment would give retroactive citizenship to all individuals who were brought into the U.S. for the purposes of adoption, just like Adam was. That amendment is just a single page. It's double-spaced. I've seen it because I helped write it. And all politicians who have seen it, and there have been many who have, have had no problems with it. The amendment would be super easy to pass as a standalone piece of legislation. It would be so straightforward. And again, it would help individuals like Adam, as well as also individuals who have been deported back to their country of origin. So again, politicians can do something about this, and you as a listener can as well. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. It's Kevin Vollmers at khv at wearegazillionstrong.org. khv at wearegazillionstrong.org. Thanks for your time. We live high.